God's word today. Good morning. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Thank you, Drew. Anybody else want to come up here and try to preach that passage? No? I didn't think so. All right. Well, let's pray, then we'll give it a shot. Father, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for this word. Uh, We thank you for your word, God, that it touches on every topic that's relevant to our lives. And so as we unpack this today, we ask that you'd be the one who teaches, convicts, encourages, and moves, that you'd shove me and all the distractions of life out of the way, and you just take over this room. We ask that you do this to your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So if you've spent any time around children at all, you know that one of the things they do most often is ask questions. Kids ask a ton of questions. Uh, And if you're like me, uh, you don't always know how to answer. Uh, There was a show that started, I think, around the time I was in college, maybe a little later, uh, on Fox with Jeff Foxworthy. It was, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, right? And uh, I have a fifth grader, and I see the homework she brings home, and I can confidently tell you today, I am not smarter than a fifth grader. Okay, that, that, that mystery has been solved for me. And so she brings stuff home, and I'm like, I don't, good luck. You know, I don't know how to answer this. But from a young age, Hattie, uh, she, she's been a great question asker, and a lot of them I don't know how to answer. Um, for instance, when she was younger, she really didn't like it when I would leave for work. And so uh, she had a progress, progressing sort of methods of protesting this, right? It started with just standing at the door crying. Every baby's done that at some point, right? Progressed to uh, physically blocking the door um, as if we didn't have another exit for me to walk out. That was easy to get around, right? And then came the physical grabbing, right? All those were pretty easy to get a part of. You know, you just pick, you, she's three, I could just toss her, right? No, I didn't do that, okay? But then what came with the hard part was the questions, right? She, eventually she was old enough to ask questions. So she'd say, Daddy, why do you have to go to work today? Why can't you just stay with me? So I was thinking about it. I was like, I'm going to try the pastor right for, route first. I'll do the spiritual thing. We're like, well, God told me to work. Okay, so I need to obey him. And I thought, this will get her, you know, trump that card. But then she came back with this. Well, doesn't God want you to be with me? She's good, isn't she? I told you, right? I'm like, you clever little thing, all right? And so I like, all right, I got to think about this. I got to come up with an answer that, that this little three-year-old would get. And so I was like, all right, do you like eating? Well, yeah. Do you like toys? Yeah, do you like, do you like your clothes? Do you like having a bed to sleep in? Do you like uh, the television you watch shows? Yeah, well, all that costs money. All of it does. And if I don't go to work, then we don't have any money, and you get none of that stuff. And I saw her wheels turn. I was like, okay, well, that, that seemed to land, but I wasn't really sure. I went to work that day, and, and I, w- I wasn't sure how she got it until a couple days later, uh, in which for some reason that morning, uh, Corinne played the Hattie role. Corinne didn't want me to go to work. She was like, man, I just wish you could be here with me today. And I don't know, I think the kitchen light was just hitting my biceps right, you know? Now, okay, that was a joke, but some of you are laughing way too enthusiastically at that, all right? These babies work, okay? Now, listen, whatever it was, right, she said, I wish, I wish you didn't have to go to work today. And from the living room came the three-year-old Hattie. goes, no, 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 Mommy, he has to go to work or we can't eat. I was like, all right, she got it, right? It, it, it landed, and I've thought about it since then, right? That answer got me out of the door that day, 
but it still wasn't a very good answer, was it? That's the most common one. I think if we polled everybody, why do you work? You'd say, well, I I have to work because I have to make money. But if you reduce work to just that, man, there's not a lot of purpose in that. There was a study done in the 90s that only 43% of Americans would say they were satisfied in their work. It gets worse in Japan. Only 17% of the Japanese said that. Now, it's true, right, that most things in life cost money. This is a reality that we have to deal with. Uh, But, man, that's not all there is. And so God's view of work is so much greater than that. It's so much more than just a transactional process. And when we reduce it to simply that, it takes away its meaning. It reduces a lot of the purpose of it. It it robs it of its dignity and leads to really unhealthy temptations. Because think of it. If your only point in working is to make money, then you'll do almost anything to make money. And that's never a good place to find yourself. So would you be surprised this morning if I told you the Bible actually has an awful lot to say about work? Both the Old and New Testament. We're coming to a section in Ephesians 6, right? And masters and slaves, you're like, what in the world is he going to do with that? Well, here's what, right? Paul is actually addressing work here. Now, to understand what's happening in these verses, we need to have some understand of, of the background and culture that Paul was writing to. But, but again, throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, God addresses work repeatedly in his word. And if you're here this morning and you've only ever seen work as a burden or a curse, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here today. If you're here and you're retired and wondering, you know, what, what's next for me, or maybe you're in the throes of your career, or you're tempted to have the wrong motivations or, or, or attitude, or maybe you're a student, or you simply just hate your job, Right? Or you're a stay-at-home mom, you find yourself as a boss or employee. I mean, listen, if you're a living, breathing human being, there's work to do in every area of life. Right? And so we, should, we need to know how God feels about it, how he wants us to approach it, and how it can take on way more meaning for you. In addition to that, I think we're going to see here in Ephesians 6 a strategy that the early church used to impact their culture that can teach us a lot today as well. So I'm going to read again the section that Drew read for us, Ephesians 6, uh, verses 5 through 9. Follow along with me. He writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but also, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free, and masters. Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, I hope you have lots of questions. Because I do. Because in these verses, Paul is writing to slaves and masters. And, and if you're like me, I kept waiting for something that never, ever came. You know what I was waiting for? Masters. Free your slaves. Because human beings are not your property. You're not bestowing them the dignity that they deserve, that the gospel says they have. And so I read and it wasn't there, and I kept looking and it wasn't there. And so I jumped over to Colossians chapter 3, where he addresses the same thing. Same, Paul again, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And then he goes on to another topic. And in Colossians, he doesn't even dress masters at all. Now, this is not the focus, the overarching focus of our sermon today, but we absolutely need to address this, don't we? 
Because there's two things that we need to grasp to help us not only understand these verses in Ephesians 6, but also apply them to our lives. And the two things are this, that slavery in the Roman Empire is not, it was likely not as you are picturing it right now. And secondly, there's a strategy that the early church used that was very intentional and it worked. And so the first thing that should clue us in that something is different about this is just when Paul addresses it in the book. Right? In both Colossians and Ephesians, Paul is writing letters to churches. And in both, he writes a section of those letters about Christian households. And he, start, he has the same formula in both books. He starts with marriage. And then he moves to parents and kids. And then he addresses slaves and masters. Right? And the reason those are all looped together like that is because slaves were seen as a part of the household. Which is already a break from what we think of with slavery, isn't it? And so let's break it down, just so you understand. Uh, the time when Paul wrote Ephesians, right, there's an estimated 6 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, 20% of the population outside of Italy, outside of the central heartbeat of Rome, 20% of the population uh, were slaves. In Rome, one in every three people were slaves. And there are multiple ways that one could become a slave. Number one, they would either be uh, prisoners of war uh, that were taken captive, um, and they would be, they'd be allowed to let live if they would re- agree to become slaves upon returning back to Rome. Or number two, in the most often way, was voluntarily. Right? Roman citizens could sell themselves or sell their children into slavery. Now, why would anybody ever do this? Well, they use this as a way of paying off debt. So if you found yourself just upside down financially, you couldn't afford to pay off everything that you owed. In order to avoid jail time, you could voluntarily sell yourself or one of your family members into servitude. And there's another aspect of the system called manumission, which is just a really fancy way of saying to grant full freedom to. Slaves in the Roman Empire could work to buy back their freedom. Once their debts were paid off, they, they would be granted freedom. Now, some would choose to voluntarily stay for a longer period as a way to build up savings and equity. Right, rather than the head back out in the world with a zero-sum balance, why not stay a little bit longer and save up? But regardless, slavery was not a life sentence. Our slaves who were freed were free to do anything they want, buy property. They would be given the full rights of Roman citizenship. And so we have to recognize right, that this was not the system that was later used by European countries and by our own country. Right, the system in which people were kidnapped from their home countries based on their race, forced into slavery as no choice of their own, bought and sold as property was a wicked, evil, disgusting practice that was an affront to God, and there's not a single thing in the Bible that could be used rightly to justify it. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 1 says this. Same author as Ephesians and Colossians. Paul is writing, he says this. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. The ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. That's quite a list, right? And he says this, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexual and homosexuality, and listen to this, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And so Paul, the exact same guy who wrote Ephesians, writes out a list of examples that he describes as lawbreakers, ungodly, unholy, and sinful, and not conforming to the gospel of Jesus. And in the middle of that, we find this identification of slave traders. Not masters, not slaves, but traders. Why? See, for most of his writing, Paul didn't take on the institution of slavery. More than that in a moment. But in 1 Timothy 1, he takes direct aim because Paul knew that the moment it went from a system where you worked off debt to where human beings were traded like property, there's nothing about that that could be abided and the Christian church must speak against it. Now, that said, we have to be honest too. 
the Roman system was far from ideal. Think about it. Just having slaves, just calling someone by that title, brings with it such a propensity and temptation to look down on and oppress others, doesn't it? And like you would expect, there were some really good uh, masters. There were some really good, thoughtful, caring masters. And there were some really cruel, evil ones. And any system that would give a higher value to one human being over another, especially based off a financial standing, is not a system that matches the view and heart of God. Which begs the question, why didn't Paul, and why didn't Peter, and why didn't other early church leaders condemn it outright? Well, first I would tell you this. We don't know that they didn't. Later in the New Testament, Paul writes uh, to, to a friend of his, Philemon, a brother in the faith. Right? And, and you, can, you can read it. It's just one chapter. You can read it today. Like, and in this letter, right, Paul uses what I would call very creative, pleasant writing, but he's basically telling Philemon what to do. And what he's telling him to do is you need to free your slave, Onesimus. And he starts all nice. It's a really pleasant letter. And then he's like, and by the way, I could, about three-quarters of the way in, he's like, I could be bold in order, to do, order you to do what you ought to do, but I want you to do it. Right? You know what he's saying there. Like, I want you to do the right thing, but you need to. And then he throws this in, in the end of the letter. Don't forget that you owe me your soul. And you're like, geez, Paul, coming off the top rope. Right? I mean, just like coming in heavy. Right? But you get, you get from that letter, you get just how Paul really feels about this. And in this, the difference between Philemon and Ephesians is that's a personal letter. It's a personal conversation between Paul and someone Paul discipled. And for Paul's public ministry, he had really clear goals. He wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus to win the lost and then strengthen the churches to disciple them in their authentic faith in Jesus so they could live out the faith right where they were. His ministry was not to overthrow the Roman government. It was not to take down cultural institutions. It was to spread the gospel and build the church. And I would argue this morning that we could learn from that. Because it wasn't just Paul. It was the entire early church that stayed clear on what their priority was and what their mission was. Their battle was not in the political arena. It was for the hearts of those that they lived with, those that they knew, those that they loved, and those they had a burden for. And if you study church history, what you, what you discover is that eventually that changed their homes, and it changed their neighborhoods, and it changed their towns, and it changed their cities, and it eventually flipped the entire Roman Empire. Listen, it's not that they didn't have opinions. It's just they had a better strategy some point in the last half a century, the American church has settled for only trying to change laws. The early church set about to change hearts, and where hearts were changed, the laws followed. Something about that is something that we can learn. Paul's strategy here in Ephesians is not to overthrow an institution, but to instruct followers of Jesus how they can bring him glory while existing within that institution. How they were to live and serve as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, whatever lot of life they're in. Which means this, that we don't get to pass these verses off as irrelevant. Because contained within them is a great view of how God sees work and how we are to interact as bosses and employees and how we are to be ambassadors from him in every arena of life. And the first thing I would tell you is this, that God has always valued work. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tell us the story of creation, how God made this place. That he, and it says again and again that God made everything perfect, and then he made a garden. Here's what Genesis 2.15 tells us. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now at this point, I want to remind you Bible students what Genesis 3 is. Genesis 3 is, when, is the fall. It's when sin enters into creation for the first time, and everything is thrown off, Right? 
And, and all of creation would, would exist under the curse of sin after Genesis 3. And I point that out so that we can get this. Work was not created by God as a response to sin, a response to the curse. Work was given to man as a gift when everything was already perfect. And so what that teaches us is that without work, there's something missing for us. Because God is a God of work. John chapter 5, verse 17. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So it would make sense, would it not, that since we are made in the image of God, that we have been designed for work. In fact, the Bible has nothing good at all to say about avoiding work. Because work carries with it a dignity and an honor and a respect and reverence to how you've been designed and made by God. And I want you to think about this. If work mattered before the fall, how much more important is, is it after? Because if you consider it, all you have to do is nothing, and the curse wins. Don't believe me? Abandon your house for three months. Walk out, leave the front door open, and come back in three months and check on it. You're going to be amazed at how poor damage it's in. Stop mowing. Stop cleaning your house or yourself. In fact, just clean yourself, all right? Don't, don't repair anything. Just see how long it takes for things to delve into chaos. It takes no time at all. Use order. He values design. He values beauty and creativity. All those are the markings of his image planted in us, and all those take work. God is pleased with good craftsmanship and excellent work. All those require effort and care. When there's an absence of effort, when there's an absence of care, when there's an absence of work, the curse always wins. And so from the very beginning, God has valued work and designed you for it. And in post-fall, it's even more important for us. Secondly is this. God wants his people to be good employees. Because it's his name that we're carrying. Now, uh, let's look at verses 5 through 8 again. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Okay, listen, I know in a room this size, there has to be numerous work situations that aren't ideal. Simply aren't ideal. And you're tempted to say, listen, I, I see where you're going, but you don't get it. You don't work for my boss. Right? You're not in my company, right? And besides, Paul is writing to slaves. He's not writing directly to employees here. You're right, he's not. He's writing to slaves. So you get a clock out, and you get to go home, and you get time off, and you have your freedom. And so be careful with that, because if this is what slaves are called to, it's at the very least what you're called to, if not more. And so the first thing that he told us to do is simply to obey. And not only just obey, but obey as we would obey Jesus. And then he lists some characteristics of this obedience. This is how we should obey. We should obey with respect. Right? Followers of Jesus should respect the position and the responsibility and demands of their bosses. You know what respect is? It's simply trying to put yourself in their shoes, try to see things through their eyes, and granting them the value that they deserve as a human being. You can almost hear, because this letter would have been read to the church at Ephesus out loud the first time they got it. You can almost hear the slaves retort, can't you? They'd be like, wait, no, wait a minute. He doesn't give me respect. Why should I give him respect? To which the early church leaders would have said, it doesn't matter. You control what you do, not what they do. In fact, listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. 
Peter goes on in that chapter to remind them that Jesus Christ suffered at the hands of cruel people and did nothing to defend himself. Again and again and again, in God's word in the Bible, we are called to deal with our own response and trust that God will have an answer to what other people are doing. And so in that, that somewhat famous saying comes true, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. We obey out of respect, we obey out of fear. I don't need to point this out to you, they have authority over you. And wisdom alone tells you that authority has the ability to impact your life and your job status. And that authority has been granted by God to them for a season, whether you like it or not. And it doesn't mean that they're using it as they should. But again, they're going to have to answer the Lord for that. You're going to have to answer to God for how you responded to them. And he then tells them that they should obey with sincerity of heart. This is genuine submission to authority, to their authority, not faking it. It's genuine. This is, there are going to be times when your boss does things that you like, and there are going to be times when they do the exact opposite. There are going to be times when they take your input, and they give you credit, and they celebrate your work, and there are going to be times where they're going to run right over you and disagree with you, ignore your input, and give you blame that you don't deserve. And regardless, God expects you to do what they ask of you in all situations, because then he says you obey consistently. Listen, we all know, we've all worked with, maybe we've even been that person whose work effort is way different than when the boss is around than when he he or she isn't. And Paul reminds them here, you're not to work for the approval of your earthly masters. What you are is the slave of Jesus Christ, and his eyes are always on you. So you work like you're working for him. Verse 7, look at it again. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. The reality is this, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be among the best employees that your company has. Now, I'm not telling you you need to be the most talented. I'm not telling you to be the most skilled or educated, right? Some of that is simply out of your control. But loyalty and faithfulness and genuineness and effort and punctuality, consistency, honesty, you should excel in every one of these areas. Any company should be better off because followers of Jesus work there. And in that, you get to be a light for Jesus. Man, imagine the impact on an unbelieving boss if one day he or she realizes that all the Christians under their employ make their life easier, make their job better, and their company better. That, that says something, right? Now, any of you who are bosses, middle management, even coaches, teachers, anybody in authority over someone, Paul's got something for you too. Because God wants his people to be good bosses. Look at verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Did you catch that opening line? Treat them the same way. And the same way you just talked about, with respect. Giving them the dignity and honor they deserve, with fear, knowing that you're going to have to answer to Jesus for how it is that you're leading them. With genuine sincerity, caring for the people who are under your purview. With consistency, right? They should know that you care about them, that you'll be fair, and you're going to have their back at all times. What you need, you need to have a recognition that God has placed you in this position of authority to be a light for him first and foremost. They don't exist to serve you. They are there so you can serve Jesus by the way that you interact with them. And I'll put it as simply as I can. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and there are people under your authority, their lives should be better because of it. You're not to be a burden to them. You're to be a blessing to them. Your care and concern and prayers, your witness and managing, correcting, leading, instructing, this should help them grow and flourish into who God has made them to be. And you're going to answer to him for that. 
And by the way, when we are good employees and when we are good bosses, ultimately what we should be doing is leaving them wanting that we know. Your, work, your workplace is one of the greatest mission fields you have, and too often we don't recognize it. Too often we simply don't live on mission. I heard a pastor this week who asked a question that was so powerful. I said, I'm going to squeeze it in the sermon even if it doesn't fit, right? And the question was this. If God said yes to every prayer you answered last week, how many more people would be in the kingdom today? If God just granted yes to every prayer you answered last week, how many more people would, would believe in Jesus and follow him? Because, man, when you have a burden for other people, when you're praying for them to come to know the Lord, all of a sudden, life and work and everything takes on new meaning. So what do we do with this? How, how do we respond rightly to, to such a high calling to slaves of Jesus? Well, number one is simply this. Don't avoid work. Embrace it. Don't avoid it. Right? I, w- I want to throw some verses up for you to consider this morning. Proverbs chapter 13. A sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Proverbs chapter 14. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. 2 Thessalonians 3, this is where Paul really comes out swinging. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and destructive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. Listen to this. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And it is clear in the Bible. Work is not something to be avoided. We don't, and I don't want you to think this morning of work as employed work only, right? Creative work, housework, any kind of work with your hands, work as service to the church, work as other agencies, work as an athlete, whatever arena that God has put you into in this life, God is not pleased with laziness. He's not honored by apathy, right? And so, in fact, time and time again, we are told repeatedly throughout the Bible to care for and feed and love on the less fortunate and the needy. Yet Paul writes here in 2 Thessalonians 3 that if there is somebody who's claiming the name of Jesus and refuses to work, we're not to help them out at all. And listen, only you know if you're skating at work. But only you know right now if you're cutting corners at your school. Only you know if you're doing just enough to pass or just enough to avoid getting in trouble or just enough to not be fired. Only you know if you're never a self-starter and you're easily distracted and effort is just something you avoid at all costs. But if that's you, you are not honoring the gift and calling of work on your life. You are not honoring Jesus with that effort. Which means, number one, the thing I would tell you this morning, or number two, the thing I would tell you this morning is simply this. You need to remember who it is you're working for. Both slaves and masters, there is the same reminder. Verse 7, serve as if you were serving the Lord. In verse 9, there's one in heaven who is both their master and yours. See, ultimately, regardless of your position, this remains true of us all. Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Ultimately, you and I and everyone, we're going to answer to him. We're going to answer to him for how we treat others. We're going to answer to him for how hard we work. We're going to answer to him for how well we work. We're going to answer to him, most importantly, for what we did with Jesus. And so you need to do what you can to be a light for him, to treat people with grace and dignity and respect and love and obedience. You need to do what you can to work hard for him. You need to do what you can to work excellently for him. And I'm, tell, I'm talking in every arena. There's nothing that Jesus isn't king over. And so when you cut your grass, don't leave strips of it uncut. 
If you do your homework, give it your best attention. If you do a job, don't do it halfway. If you wash dishes, there shouldn't be food left in the dish, right? Be thorough. You are working for him. He deserves your best effort. Henry Ironside is a famous preacher about three or four generations ago, and he wrote in his autobiography about his first job. He worked for a shoemaker, a cobbler, if you will. So it tells you how many years back this was, okay? But the shop owner name uh, was Dan, and he was a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus Christ, and this guy was one of those just really awesome, sold-out followers of Jesus. And Henry writes about how the oftentimes that right there in the shoe shop, this guy was leading people to the Lord. And when he hired him, he took three to four months to train him on this really long, painstaking process to undergo with leather that they would use to either make or repair shoes. And one day on, on his way to this job, he passed by another cobbler shop and he looked in the window and he noticed they were, they were skipping several of the steps that Dan had taught him to do. And so he went in and asked the owner about it. He said, well, I noticed you didn't do this and this and this and I was just curious, why, why don't you guys do that? And he says, well, it's really simple. When I skip that, it brings the customers back sooner. Which, by the way, wraps up capitalism in about one sentence, doesn't it? So thinking that he discovered a trick, Henry went back and told Dan, he said, if we, if we skip this step, not only will we turn it out faster, but the shoes don't last as long and the customers come back and we can sell more. So Dan didn't say anything. He just stood up and went over and grabbed his Bible. And he turned to Colossians chapter 3 and he read to Henry, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And then he told Henry, he said, I don't fix shoes for money that I get from customers. I do it for the glory of God. Some men are called to preach. Some were called to fix shoes. That was me. And I expect to see every shoe I've ever fixed in a pile on judgment day sitting before me. And I don't want the Lord to pick up one and say, Dan, this was a really poor job. You didn't do your best here. Instead, what I want him to say is, well done, my good and faithful servant. He never lost sight of who he was working for, but he also never lost sight of what his ultimate job was. And we need to do the same thing. We need to remember our ultimate calling. Matthew 28, Jesus stands on the mountain, looks at his followers. Therefore, go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything to obey everything that I've commanded you. That great commission, that calling hand is church, we should view everything that we do and everything that we are through that calling. Sin has placed the creation that we exist in and live in under a curse. All of creation, according to Romans 8, is groaning and crying out. All the people that we know, there's people that we know and love that are under spiritual blindness, and we get the privilege as followers of Jesus and fighting back against that. And I've been to some places in our globe where it was a really impoverished place and trash lined the streets and things were falling apart and disorder and chaos were everywhere. And I've been to other places just as poor, and there was none of that. Because order doesn't require money. It just requires effort. And anytime you bring creativity, anytime you bring beauty or positivity or cleanliness or order or knowledge or worship into our world, you're fighting the curse. And that's an incredibly honorable thing to do. And secondly, in our jobs, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in all our relationships, we should remember our first and highest calling. Why should we work hard when we don't feel like it? Why listen to a boss who's honestly a jerk and only out for them? Why? Because our experience isn't the highest aim of our life anymore. The highest aim of our life is to make Jesus look as good and desirable as we can. And so we must remind ourselves that everywhere we go and everything that we do, we carry his name and his banner with us, which leads us to our last one, which is simply this. We have to care more about God's name than our fairness. 
I'm gonna, I want you to look at a passage in 1 Peter 2. Before I read it, I'm just going to warn you. You're going to hate it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Just think about this opening line. It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And then he says this, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Listen, I don't have to, listen, I have to guess that some of you in this room, within the sound of my voice, are in a toxic work environment. And I don't want to downplay that at all. Right? I, don't, I don't want to downplay how draining that can be, how difficult that can be, how unfair that can be. And absolutely, feel free to pray to the Lord and ask him to change your work situation. But while you're still there, we all need to embrace this truth. The moment of the grace of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we laid down the right to demand fairness on our behalf. We just did. We made that trade. Because we don't want fairness. Fairness means that I spend all of eternity in hell, suffering in fire and torment and pain for the sins that I rightly committed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not fair. It's not fair in the slightest. It's not fair that God became a man. To, to, to walk in our shoes and feel our temptations. It's not fair that Jesus Christ lived the sinless life that I could not live, and then he died on the cross for nothing that he had done but for the sins I committed. It's not fair that he took my place in that, tasted death for me, and offers me complete forgiveness and eternal life for nothing that I've done. Right? But that's what Jesus has done. And by the way, if you're here and you haven't believed in him, we want you to know that more than anything today, that God stands at the ready to forgive you of every sin you've ever committed, to adopt you into his family and grant you eternal life in him, not because you deserved it, not because you can ever work and earn it, not because there's anything you can do to, to capture that on your own, because Jesus Christ took your place and offers that freely to you if you believe in him. Right? But listen to me. If you've accepted that grace, that incredibly unfair grace, then you just don't get to demand fairness anymore when that's not what's been shown to you. Instead, what Peter said is this. We now suffer for Jesus' sake. That we endure toxic environments and are great employees anyway. We hear the insults and we share his love and gospel anyway. We get labeled all sorts of things and we stay faithful to his word and his truth anyway. And by the way, this isn't all just loss, right? Yes, you get to bring Jesus' glory, which should be our highest aim, but listen to this promise in verse 8. Ephesians 6, 8, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Which begs this question. Who is it that you would rather have reward you? Your company, your boss, coach, teacher, any human being at all, or God? And hard work matters. It matters because God demands and deserves our very best. It matters because we carry his name and banner wherever we go, regardless of whatever obstacles or hurdles might be in our way. It matters because we have been called to be his ambassadors in every field of our life. So embrace it, don't avoid it, and shine like the lights that you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word touches on every arena, every area of life, especially one that dominates so much of our time and attention like work. And so, Lord, as we 
approach this response time, God, a time to just spend some time in prayer with you and wrestle with some things that, that you may have put your finger on today. I pray that, that your grace would be felt in this room, God, that anybody who's, who carries your name has the privilege of having the name of Jesus Christ be the banner they carry, that we would not avoid work. God, that we would not cut corners, that we would not accept uh, laziness or apathy or dishonesty. But God, that we would strive to honor you in everything that we do. Because first and foremost, we're working for you. And secondly, that your mission overrides every one of our career goals. Your mission overrides every one of our schooling goals. Your mission overrides every aim we have in this life. So help us, God, to always live on that mission, to pray for those who don't know you, and to constantly being aware that we are an example for you, that we are a witness for your gospel. God, if there's anybody in this room this morning who's never given their faith and trust to Jesus Christ, I pray that, that they would just surrender this morning. God, that they lay down their objections, they lay down their worries, they lay down their concerns and say, I'm, I'm, I'm ready, I'm ready to just give this a go. I'm ready to believe in Jesus Christ. I pray that today is their day of salvation, that your spirit would draw them to yourself now and they would surrender. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We're going to give you a couple minutes just to spend some time between you and the Lord. But a few questions that we want you to wrestle with as you do is simply this. Number one, in what ways do you need to change the way that you see and value work? Uh, secondly, do you see your place of employment as an active mission field? Because it is, by the way. Thirdly, this is, I want you to wrestle with this question the way I have all week. If, you, if God said yes to all your prayers, how many more people would, be, would have given their lives to Jesus Christ? Right. Fourthly, do you demand that things be fair for you? Are you willing to actively endure unfairness to be a light for Jesus? And lastly, are, are people better off because you're in their life? And if you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus Christ, we just want to ask, are you ready? Because if you are, then we want to show you in God's word how to do that. And so during this response time, you can come right up here and find me or find me, find me or somebody who invited you right after the service. We will show you in God's word exactly what it means to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and let today be your day of salvation. But for now, this is your time with him.